Well, we come to the end of our series looking at um, uh, these uh, last chapters of Genesis and um, I've uh, uh, had one of these uh, handouts again produced for us and if you'd like to uh, take that up and uh, see where we're going then please do grab hold of that. Hopefully it's been tucked inside your service order. I've had a few people ask me today what I've done to my head. Uh, I had um, a disagreement with a tree and the tree won. Um, if you want to know more you can ask me afterwards and of course those who are listening to this sermon uh, on the tape are wondering uh, what my head looks like now. Uh, well that's up to them to come and find out later. I remember very clear, clearly my uh, very first experience of, of reading the Bible. I don't know whether you do as well. Um, it, my brother actually brought us a Bible uh, as a family for Christmas. It was one Christmas and bizarrely I would prayed um, just the night before that we'd get a Bible for Christmas. It was what, the first answer to prayer that I can ever remember. And um, uh, after Christmas I began to read this Bible. And my brother obviously knew that I'd done it, even though I was doing it on, in secret. And he said to me a few days later, um, are you reading the Bible? And I said, uh, well, yes, I was. What do you mean you, what you were? He says, well, I've stopped, said I. Uh, why did you stop? Well, I started reading at Genesis, and by chapter 5, I, it was too depressing because everyone dies. So I've stopped reading it. And he said to me, oh, you really should have started in Matthew's Gospel. And I said, Why? Uh, I start at the beginning of the book and he explained to me why that was a better place to start but it's very interesting that my first experience of reading the Bible I was totally depressed because everybody died in the passage and then when I read this this week I started to feel the same thing at first everyone dies well not quite everyone in this section just uh, Jacob and Joseph but they are the key characters in this section Jacob dies and Joseph dies but this is very different to Genesis chapter 5 as these two die they are remarkably positive about their death. Listen to the words of Joseph, chapter 50 and verse 24, page 57 in our Bibles. Chapter 50 and verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Joseph and Jacob before him, we'll see in a moment, have great assurance that death is not the end. More than that, they are really positive in death. Now that, of course, is a very rare thing, even for Christians. Wouldn't you like to have this kind of approach to death? That as you died, you could be positive about your own death and what was coming beyond uh, As many of you know, my mum has been told that she has just months to live rather than years. And I've got to say, uh, she has been quite remarkable through this time. We've spoken openly about death uh, during these last weeks and months. Uh, she said to me she's not frightened about death at all. She's worried about the process of dying. Uh, she's got cancer. She presumes that uh, her last days will not be pleasant. She's worried about the process of dying, but she isn't worried about what lies beyond the grave. And I've got to say that has been a real challenge to me, because as I've spoken to her, I've wondered how I would feel. Oh, yeah, I certainly would be frightened about the process. Uh, but I wonder if I'd be questioning the gospel as well. Is it really true? What a wonderful thing to be facing death with such confidence and certainty and in such a positive light. How can we die like Joseph and Jacob, as we'll see here tonight? Well, first, if you're uh, following in the handout, see how they were looking to be in the promised land. 
Uh, Look at Jacob's words back in chapter 49 and verse 29. Then Jacob gave his sons these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place for Ephron the Hittite along with the field. You see, this section all the way through to chapter 50 verse 14 is about Jacob being buried and very specifically, he mentions it three times, it's mentioned three times here, buried in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan. In Canaan, that is the crucial point. This is about being in the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Joseph wants the same. Do you see it again? Chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up to this place. Do you see, both Jacob and Joseph were looking to be in the promised land. Now, don't get confused. This, of course, wasn't an ancient equivalent of wanting to have your ashes scattered on the pitch at Hillsborough or whatever your thing is. No, this is an expression of trusting in the promise of God. This is a demonstration of their longing to be in the place of God's promise, Canaan. Look how Jacob speaks in verse 29. Uh, That's chapter 49, verse 29. He says, I am about to be gathered to my people. Jacob doesn't think death is the end. He believes he's going to meet his granddad, Abraham, and his dad, Isaac. That's appropriate on Father's Day, isn't it? No, he didn't say it on Father's Day, I know, but it's appropriate. And in case you think that I'm making far too much of this, come with me, uh, keep your finger in in Genesis uh, 50, and come with me to Hebrews chapter 11, page 1209. Page 1209. Genesis chapter 11 and I'm going to read from verse 13 but the key verse is verse 16. Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these people, these people that listed before, Abraham being one of them, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. You see, Abraham, Isaac and then Jacob after them didn't have as developed an understanding of eternity that we have. We have the whole Bible. We have more and complete revelation from God than they had. But do you see here in verse 16, they were longing for a heavenly country. They knew that God's promise for a greater place than Canaan, but a place that all the same was epitomised by Canaan. And their longing then to be buried in Canaan was a demonstration of their faith in God's promise and their longing to be in the place of God's promise. But you see, that is how you die well. Having a longing for the place of eternal promise. They lived their lives for it. 
If this was really our heart's desire, can you imagine how it would change the way we lived and indeed change the way we die? It would change the way we live in that we wouldn't be so desperate to have everything now. If we could say uh, with these great saints of old that we're longing for a better country, for a heavenly one, that's what we're really longing for, that's our heart's longing, it would change the way we live now. Uh, My children have been uh, singing a a Queen song uh, fairly recently. I don't know where they picked it up from, uh, but uh, they sing this around the house. I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. Now, you see, I saw some of you, uh, you know the song. And it it seems to me as they sing it, that seems to be exactly the, the motto of British society. I want everything and I want it now. That's why we live on credit. Oh, years ago, people didn't live on credit, did they? You used to save up for things before you bought things. How old-fashioned is that? It's what drives you to buy a new mobile phone when the old one works perfectly well. I want it now. I want the new thing now. Britain is driven by the need to have everything now. World travel, bigger property, the latest gadgets. Why do we want a bigger house when the one we've got is perfectly big enough? What's that about? Uh, The thing is, I don't always see a great difference in the way Christians live in Britain. But if we live for the place of God's promise, if that was what our heart's longing was, if we took Jacob and Joseph's view, we wouldn't feel the need to have everything now. We would know that everything will be ours one day. We don't need to do world travel now or have a great house now or have the latest fashion now because in eternity, in the promised land, in the heavenly Jerusalem, we'll be living in a mansion. We'll be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We'll have eternity to travel the new creation. We don't need it all now. We'll have eternity to do it. See, it would change the way we live now. And having a longing for the place of eternal promise would change the way we die as well. One of the things my mum and I have talked about recently is the thought that dying means kind of missing out. We think that way, I think, because... We think this is where all the action is, don't we? We wouldn't think that way if we had the place of God's promise in our heart. That that was the longing for where we wanted to be. A good friend of mine went to the British Grand Prix today. I've not uh, spoken to him since he went, but he, he, he absolutely loves motor racing. I've never met anybody who loves motor racing as much as him. Name a Grand Prix, any Grand Prix... Uh, from, you know, I was going to say the recent era, but years back, he can tell you who won, uh, all the major incidents, the colour of the mechanic's socks, all those sorts of things. He, and he has been so excited about going to the British Grand Prix as it's been building up. And you know, while he's been there, I've not spoken to him, but while he's been there, whatever has gone on at home, he won't feel that he's missing out. He feels that he's been where the action is. He'll feel that everyone else who wasn't at the Grand Prix is missing out. How do you see our silly little illustration of if the land of God's promise was where we really wanted to be, we wouldn't feel that death would leave us missing out here. We'd feel that everyone else was missing out. That's why the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jacob and Joseph then died well because they were looking to be in the promised land. Second, see how Joseph was looking towards the promised rescue. 
Uh, back in Genesis chapter 50 and uh, again verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised. And you see, it's a slightly different point. Joseph was confident that God would deliver his people from Egypt. Do you see, that's really the point, the major point of that first half of verse 24. God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land. Here, of course, is how we reach the promised land, through the promised rescue. And Joseph was absolutely sure of that. Again, I should have told you this, but turn with me to, uh, Genesis, uh, to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, where we've just been. This is the last cross-reference, uh, but come back with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and just see um, how Hebrews explains what's going on in Joseph's mind as he says those words. Again, page 1209. Right at the very bottom of the page, bottom right-hand corner, Hebrews 11 verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. He spoke about the exodus, even before it happened. See, here is the Bible's commentary on what was happening in Joseph's mind as he said those words that we've just read. Joseph spoke about the exodus from Egypt. So as we turn back to Genesis chapter 50, we know that as Joseph said, verse 24 and verse 25, he was thinking about the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. And once we've seen that, we begin to see there's so much in this section that uh, foreshadows the exodus. Now look what happened when, uh, when Jacob died. Chapter 50 and verse 5 Joseph approached Pharaoh and he asked if his people could go to the land. What does that ring bells for us, do you see? Chapter 50, verse 9, when they went to bury Jacob, chariots and horsemen went with them. Now, can you hear the overtones of the Exodus? Moses going up to Pharaoh to ask his people if they can go. And when the people did finally flee Egypt... Horses and chariots went to, not as a cavalcade, but in pursuit of the Hebrews. All this language is to make us think of the Exodus. Because that, you see, is what Joseph was thinking of. Again, Joseph couldn't possibly have known exactly how it was all going to happen. But Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Joseph was trusting God to rescue his people from Egypt. Joseph was believing the Exodus. God's rescue would happen. And that, you see, is faith. Trusting the promises of God. Even though he hadn't seen it with his own eyes, Joseph believed the promise of God. That's what we all need at death, isn't it? Because we won't have fully experienced our deliverance. Or we could and should always look back to the cross of Christ. That is where our rescue took place. But we haven't yet experienced fully our rescue, have we? Our deliverance. Wouldn't it be wonderful then to have this assurance as you approach death, a certainty that that Jesus' death will save you from God's wrath? Now you see, I believe that. I really do. But what a difference at the point of death to really believe it so that you can face death with confidence. I've got to tell you that seeing people die with that sort of assurance is a remarkable thing. In the last couple of years, I've seen it in a couple of people here in this church as I've visited them. They've, they've faced death and they've had total confidence in God's salvation. Remarkable. 
total confidence that when they come face to face with with God, they will be accepted because of Jesus' death for them on the cross. And that is so different from the fear and trouble that overwhelms those who face death without this confidence. And again, sadly, I've seen that in Christians who've gone through death with great fear and no assurance. I'm not saying they're not saved. It's just that at that point of death, they are fearful. They don't have that great assurance. So as we look at Joseph and Jacob before, how can we have that confidence? Why did Joseph have such solid assurance when it finally came to the moment when he needed it? Well, I think it was because he'd experienced God keeping his promises throughout the, the events of his life. I think back to the dreams of chapter 37. God's word of promise to Joseph was that his family would bow down to him. When the word first came to him, it didn't seem very likely that it would happen at all. It seemed even less likely to be true when he was sold into slavery and then thrown into prison. He'd have very good reason to doubt that the word of promise through all those years of hardship would come true. But we know the story. Years later, the dreams did come true. And so do you see, Joseph had seen God keep his revealed word in his own life. And so when it came to his death, when it came to the greater gospel promise of deliverance, of rescue, Joseph trusted God. You see, we gain assurance as we experience God's promises being worked out in our lives. The ultimate assurance comes only from the death of Jesus Christ, but that is built in us as we see God working out his promises in small ways in our lives. I think of a man I met when I worked in in New York for a summer. Um, I, I worked in... Uh, in New York, working with drug addicts and, and homeless people. And um, uh, this home that we sort of worked in, people would come uh, daily for food. And uh, it basically ran on donations and on food being given to us. And on one occasion when I was there, there was no food left. Uh, there was no food for us that evening. And the following morning, we were going to have 40, 50 men come for breakfast. And we had no food. And the pastor, whose name was Pastor Dunlap, Uh, said to us, let's pray. And I've got to say, I thought to myself, what's the point? Although there wasn't a lot else to do, really. We didn't have any food. And he said, let's pray. And he said, the Lord has said he'll meet our needs, so let's pray. And we did. And as we prayed, the doorbell rang. And you know how the story's going to go. There was a huge delivery of food. Fresh bread, fresh fruit, donuts. We had a feast that evening. And the homeless men who came the next morning had breakfast as well. Pastor Dunlap wasn't phased. Yeah, we did leave some for them. Pastor Dunlap, <laughs> Pastor Dunlap wasn't phased because he'd seen the Lord provide before and because he'd seen the Lord keep his promises. And so he was rock solid on the gospel promises of salvation. He didn't fear death. He was looking forward to it. He didn't doubt his salvation. He was sure of it. How many Christians lack that sort of solid, certain assurance because we haven't lived a lifetime of trusting God? Our lives are so comfortable, we don't need to trust God to provide. Look, I'm not knocking the fact that we have lots of things, I'm just saying we don't need it, do we? Our bank balances are healthy. We've never experienced that feeling of not knowing where the next meal is coming from. We don't really have to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I wonder how many of us did bother praying that this morning. Probably not many of us. We might have said the words, but did we really pray it? Probably not. 
Let me encourage us to put ourselves in situations where we have to rely on the Lord. I don't know how that could be. Um, Maybe in some area of service. If you're thinking, I ought to serve the Lord somewhere, but I don't think I could do that. Why don't you give it a try and just see that the Lord equips you and enables you and you come out the other side and you go, that was amazing. How about short-term missions? I don't know how you're planning to use gap years and and sort of summer holidays. How are you going to use them? Use them in in, in situations where you're, you're put into the situation where you don't think you can cope. And then at the end of it, when you come out of it, you'll go, that was amazing. I was able to do all sorts of things I never thought I could do. Well, how about in giving? Giving more money than you would normally give and seeing the bank balance go down and what about the future? Just see the way the Lord provides for you. It is remarkable. See, seeing the Lord meet needs is a wonderful experience and it will strengthen us when it comes to trust the Lord for his promised rescue. And that's why Joseph, I think, had such assurance. He'd seen the Lord work it out in his life And so when it came to the promise that he hadn't yet seen unfolding, he said, oh, that's going to happen. Tonight, though, as we take communion, that's the real place. Give thanks to God for the certainty that can be ours in death because the rescue of the Lord has happened. See what he has provided for us. These men then died well because, firstly, they were looking to be in the promised land. Secondly, they were looking towards the promised rescue. And thirdly, uh, on the handout there, they were looking to live as the promised people. See, the way Joseph lived demonstrated that he was one of God's people. Just look how he responds to his brothers. See, when old man Jacob died, the brothers were worried. Look at verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. I I love these verses. Do you see what, what, what goes on? Do you see what the brothers say? They say, dad says, be nice to us. That's basically what it is. And Joseph's response is amazing. Verse 19. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. There were three things here um, that demonstrate that Joseph uh, wanted to live as one of the promised people of God. Derek Kidner says this of Joseph's response. Each sentence of the threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old and New Testament faith. To leave all writings of wrongs to God, to see God's providing hand in man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection. These are the attitudes that anticipate Christ-likeness. Now, if you didn't get that, I'm going to go through those three things very briefly as we close. Derek Kinder is saying, Joseph is a man who is Christ-like in three ways. Firstly, he refused to sit in God's seat. Look at verse 19 again. Joseph said, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? 
Joseph says, it's not for me to take God's place. It's not for me to sit in judgment over you. Remarkably, Joseph doesn't bear a grudge. After all that his brothers did to him, he doesn't bear a grudge. He's not harbouring bitter thoughts. He's not in this place of refusing to forgive his brothers. If anyone could make a case to get his own back, Joseph could. But he refuses to live that way. Joseph knows that's God's prerogative. See, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, the Lord says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. You see what he's saying? saying, You and I can't sit in, in, in judgment of others. We don't know what's best for them. We don't know everything that's happened in their lives. We don't know all that's led them to react the way they do. We don't know whether they need discipline or tenderness. We don't know that. Not the way God does. But Joseph understands that. He lives in a Christ-like manner. He refuses to sit in God's seat. See, what a difference it would make in life if we lived as Joseph lived in verse 19. Imagine the difference it would make if our attitude to others was, was very just this. Don't be afraid, I'm not going to judge you. Don't be afraid, I'm not going to seek revenge on you. It doesn't matter what you've done, I'm not going to do that. What a difference it would be. See, there'll be people in this congregation who harbour ju- grudges against others. There'll be people in this congregation who avoid others. There'll be people in this congregation who haven't dealt with things that have happened years ago. I'm told that some won't attend church because of something in the past. Listen to Joseph. In sitting in judgment on another, you are sitting in God's seat. You are considering yourself God. That is no way for a Christian to live. So if you're doing that, repent of it today. And as you take communion this evening, repent of that attitude. Put yourself right with others. Joseph refuses to sit in God's seat. The second way that he lived as one of God's people is he takes God's view. Verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, Joseph really believes in the sovereignty of God. Most Christians I speak to say they believe that God is sovereign. He really believes it. Joseph knows that God uses even the most evil acts to bring about his purposes. And Joseph knows that not only in the abstract, not only on a grand scale, Joseph knew it in his own life. So he can say to his brothers, you meant to harm me, and they did. You meant to harm me, God intended it for good. See, what a difference it makes when we believe in the sovereignty of God to that degree. Because then, whatever happens to you and me, even when we are on the receiving end of great evil, even then we can take it without becoming bitter and twisted. Because we believe God is in control. He will use that thing against us for good. And you see, that means no one can sink me. Whatever anybody else does to me, they cannot sink me, for God will take anything that anyone throws at me and he will use it for good. Isn't that wonderful? And it is a remarkable way to live when you know that. As you take communion today, look at the cross and be assured 
of the supreme example of this very thing. Evil men killed the Lord of glory. They did their worst and God used it for the salvation of many. Three ways that Joseph lived as the promised people. First, he, took, he refused to sit in God's seat. Secondly, he took God's view. And thirdly, he displayed God's love. Look at verse 21. He says this to men who had to tried to kill him, basically. He sold him into slavery. He said, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph loved his enemies. His brothers hated him. They caused him great harm. Years and years of harm. Joseph forgave them. And then he loved them in very practical ways. I will provide for you and your children. And if you're not sure about that, I'll reassure you. He spoke kindly to help them to really believe he would. That's Christ-like living, isn't it? That is spectacularly different to anything you'll find in this world. And that is the mark that Joseph was one of God's people. And you see, living like this gives us great assurance in the face of death. Not because our good works will save us, but because when we have lived like this, we have lived in a way that, that means that we cannot be accused. Do you know what happens as people face death? They reflect back on their lives Anybody who knows they're about to die reflects back on their lives. That can result in the most troubling of times. They recall all that they've done with their lives. Sometimes they look back on a life wasted. Often they look back on a life of mistakes and regrets. And that incidentally is why it's so important to ask people on their deathbed if they've made their peace with God because often they realise they need to as they've gone back over life. But you see, it's no different for the Christian. If we ever, I mean, some of us might, might die like that, but if we come to the point where we know we're going to die, if the Christian has lived a life where they have refused to forgive others and haven't been kind, then let me tell you, you will hear the whisper of the evil one saying, and you call yourself a Christian. You can't believe that you can be acceptable to God with the way you've lived. You're a scoundrel. But if we've lived a Christ-like life, we cannot be accused. Do you see how a Christ-like life gives us assurance in the face of death? Not because our lives save us, only Jesus' death saves us, but a life well lived leaves the evil one with little to accuse us of. This then is a chapter where everyone dies. Well, almost, Jacob and Joseph. Certainly all the important characters die. But they die well. How wonderful it would be for you and me to die well. But that isn't going to happen if we don't live a life well. We too can face death with confidence by looking to be in the promised land. If that is our longing in our heart. If we live it now, when it comes to the day, it will be something we want. We too can face death with confidence by looking towards the promised rescue believing in what we're going to do as we take communion, but, but also having seen God keep his promises in our lives, so assuring us that he'll keep that greater promise. We too can face death with confidence 
by looking uh, to live as the promised people now because if we live that kind of Christian life now there will be no chance for an accusation against us. And tonight we too can begin to face death with confidence by looking to Jesus and his death on the cross for us for that is the only place we ultimately have confidence. See, Jesus is the ultimate Joseph and we'll be reminded of that as we take communion. As we see these three things at the end of the uh, handout worked out in Jesus' life. He was in the place of God but he didn't use it to judge others. He came to save us. Jesus took God's view knowing that his father would turn the actions of evil men to accomplish good. And Jesus demonstrated God's love. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus demonstrates God's love in that he cried out as his executioners killed him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let's pray together.